Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today's episode is Gundalo and Homer's Halibut in a Dory, Marine Environmental History Informing Ocean Conservation and Stewardship. My guests today are Molly Bolster, Executive Director of a nonprofit Gundalo Company in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Hello, Molly. Hi, Rob. And uh, Jeff Bolster, who's history professor at the University of New Hampshire. Hello, Jeff. Good morning, Rob. And um, Jeff, the audience should notice that you and Molly have the same last name, and I understand you two share more than a marriage. Can you tell us those commonalities? Oh, yes, we have a mortgage and a joint checking account, several children, and a cat. So uh, we've been in it together for about a quarter century, and uh, we're working together as well on some uh, environmental issues that might be of interest to the listeners here. Well, you're following, you know, Olivia Newton-John with her husband, Amazon John, were on the episode before. Uh, So it's great to have another dynamic couple that are, in your case, out there saving the ocean through maritime heritage. Uh, Molly, tell us a bit about the Gundalo Company. I see that its uh, mission is to protect the local Ocean River watershed's heritage and the environment through education and action. Yeah, so what we're trying to do is uh, looking at this Piscataqua region, which is a network of seven or eight rivers that all connect into the Gulf of Maine. Um, It's a pretty large watershed with about 42 communities in New Hampshire and another 10 communities in Maine. And we're using a, a replica of a historic vessel, the gundalo, that was once very common on these rivers. There were, there were hundreds of gundalos, and they were carrying cargo primarily from Portsmouth, which is a deep water port, um, up all of the shallow rivers that connect to the towns um, that are within, say, 20 miles or so of Portsmouth. And today we're using a replica, uh, not carrying cargo, but we're carrying an educational message, trying to use uh, this vessel as a way to connect both the past, um, but also looking ahead and at some of the water quality issues that we're facing on these rivers. Can you tell us a little bit about what a gundalo looks like, and how do you know you're looking at a gundalo and not something else? Sure. Uh, they're, they're distinct, I'd say. They're, they were <laughs> built, really, to take advantage of some pretty specific conditions on these rivers. Uh, they, they're about, say, 40 to 70 feet long. Uh, they were completely flat on the bottom because... 
most of the rivers bottom out to mudflats at low tide around here. Uh, they have a lee board, always just one lee board, um, and they also had eventually the design evolved to include a lateen rigged sail, and uh, that just means that there's a, a relatively short stump mass that go, goes about 20 feet up off the deck, and then hanging from that at an angle um, is the yard that is generally the same length as the boat, and the sail is attached to the yard. The design was... Uh, so that when these boats were going along with the current, which sometimes runs as much as six knots, as more and more bridges were being built across these rivers, um, obviously if, if it wasn't a drawbridge, there's no way you could stop a boat that's moving along at six knots. So the rig was designed so that the whole yard lowers to the deck relatively easily, um, allowing the boat to pass under the bridge. Um, hopefully the, the bridge isn't lower than the height of the stump mast, and then once you get through, the sail can be... Uh, re, you know, raised again, and then carry on as if nothing happened. But it's, it's a pretty <laughs> Jeez, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, I think they that's probably like a mask quickly. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, they Rob, definitely I can jump in here uh, quickly. In the age of sail, every one of these ports on the East Coast uh, and Europe had lighters of sorts, barges that that uh, were the interface between deep water ships and smaller ports. And in and in some places like the Piscataqua Estuary. Um, those vessels developed into a very specific kind of uh, indigenous or vernacular design. It's really a local, quirky barge, sort of like a, a Thames River sailing barge. But this was the, the lifeblood of the economy here. It really kept this economy going for about three centuries. Well, we were talking in the last episode with Eric Owen, who's written about the history of whaling, and he was describing how the, the whalers out on Nantucket had problems getting over the sandbar and had to develop technologies like that. Well, they developed camels, I guess, to hoist their own boats over, but right. um, these are the issues of navigating our harbors of North America, I guess. And, of course, yeah. many of the rivers in this estuary have been silted up uh, through time. We have uh, ports on, on this estuary that were once shipbuilding ports that built deep-sea square riggers to go to the ends of the earth, and today you're lucky to get up and down those rivers in a kayak at low tide. Uh, that's because of the deforestation, the plow agriculture, the siltation, the erosion through time, and uh, it's really changed the nature of the watershed. But, the, but Molly, the gondola still works, right? And you take people out? Um, well, we have had this replica for about 30 years. Uh, just will be 30 years next year. And when it was built, uh, the, the spirit of the project then was to really uh, build it as historically accurately as possible and... It was built, you could say, as a museum exhibit, which means that we are uh, we're only allowed to do dockside programs. So we can do programs, mm -hmm. and we do programs for about ten or fifteen thousand people a year. But it's always while the boat is tied to a dock. We can move the gondola that we have now um, on our own with a volunteer crew. So last summer, for instance, we moved to about fourteen different docks at different towns throughout the watershed. Um, and, and had a, a series of celebrating our rivers festivals and programs for school groups and that sort of thing. But we've we've been limited really to what we can do while the boat is tied to the dock. And you know, it's interesting in, in the last 30 years since we've been doing these dockside programs, there are dozens of very powerful programs that have been developed using this model of either a historic vessel or a, a vessel that has been restored to carry this kind of educational message. And so what we're aiming to do, and in, we're in the middle of doing now, is uh, building a new gondola that will be certified by the Coast Guard to carry passengers and to do um, you know, a, a more 
the, the kind of program that we think of now when you can take a school group or a group of adults and go out and spend a day on these rivers and really uh, connect to your place from a different perspective and really combine the social studies and marine science and stewardship um, all into this one program. So we're very excited about the shift that we're taking as an organization away from the dockside programs to uh, really getting underway. Uh, so what goes, how do you go about building a whole new one or a whole new old one? Or <laughs> Well, it's been a, it's been a process. Uh, we are fortunate to be working with Paul Rollins, who's a local boat builder who's uh, spent the last 35 years or so building wooden boats of all sizes, um, and he was a natural for this project. Um, he actually, as a teenager, was an apprentice to Bud McIntosh, who is probably still the best-known boat builder from New Hampshire um, and was involved in a number of projects. But Paul has taken this project on. Um, he's got a, a crew that he brought with him, and then we have several volunteers that are helping. We're, we're using a portion of uh, Strawberry Bank Museum has been generous in letting us use a portion of their property to build a temporary shipyard on a spot, ironically, that uh, not too long ago was part of the waterfront. It's an area that's been filled in and is uh, now just looks like lawn, but for a long time it was um, a little inlet here on the waterfront in Portsmouth that was definitely uh, where there were boats coming in and out. But we're now uh, looking at probably a six-month to eight-month construction period. Uh, we have all the wood on site. The process of getting the wood was pretty interesting. It came from pretty much all over New England uh, with one one delivery from Nova Scotia. Um, but we're building it traditionally in the sense that it's trunnel fastened and plank on frame. Um, however, we are uh, we worked with a naval architect to help us through some of the Coast Guard regulations. Um, there will be an inspection going on probably once a week the whole time we're building the boat so that at the end the Coast Guard will be able to uh, give us the certificate we need to be able to carry passengers. So like in the building of the Constitution, you had to find different woods? Is that why you had to go different places for the Absolutely. timber? Absolutely. Yeah, and you know, the way gundalows were built uh, using local materials, uh, a lot of white oak, uh, white pine, black locust is what has always been used for the trunnels and uh, the tree nails or the pegs that hold a lot of the pieces of wood together. Uh, or black locust, the yeah, Eggs. that's always yeah. been the wood of choice. Uh, we then uh, hackmatack, which is also known sometimes as tamarack or larch, um, is a type of tree that typically grows along the sides of rivers and has a nice 90-degree uh, angle to its uh, the root and the tree. Um, and that was always desired by boat builders because it makes a nice frame. It's that nice shape that, that meets the, makes the shape between the side of the boat and the bottom. And unfortunately, the, all the hackmatack that used to grow in New Hampshire has been used uh, years ago by boat builders. So we had to go to Nova Scotia to get our hackmatack. Um, and then after we got the hackmatack, we uh, were fortunate to get some access to some wood that was purchased by the Navy 100 years ago for the Constitution. Um, it was at a time when they were shifting from using wood um, to more iron knees. And so we believe this wood got... Uh, put aside and forgotten about until relatively recently. Uh, they, the Constitution, one of the wharves right near there was being uh, restored, and they came upon this load of wood that just looked too perfect uh, for it not to be valuable to somebody. So luckily the construction crew stopped and 
made a few phone calls. Uh, we bought some. Mystic Seaport bought some for the Charles W. Morgan restoration that they're working on, and I think a number of other boat builders were lucky to get some of this beautiful live oak. That um, It's just extraordinary wood, and it's in perfect condition, so we'll be able to use that in, in a lot of places. That's phenomenal. We're going to take a break with Molly Bolster and Jeff Bolster. We'll be right back after this break. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're speaking with Jeff Bolster. And Molly Bolster, Molly is the executive director of the Gundalow Company, and the company is uniquely positioned to inspire individuals to take responsibility and become better stewards for our maritime region. Molly, how can people learn more about the Gundalow Company? Well, you can visit our website, which is www.gundalow.org. You can also uh, come to Portsmouth, New Hampshire this summer and come to the Puddle Dock Shipyard, which is located at Strawberry Bank Museum, and uh, watch this process happening. It's a rare chance to watch a wooden vessel being built, and we encourage people to come see what we're doing. Well, what kind of dock is on a puddle? I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> well, I don't know. Jeff, do you know the origin of the name? I'm not sure. Yeah, Puddle Dock was one of the three tidal inlets here in Portsmouth. It's now been totally filled. It's been filled for more than a century. It just looks like a lawn. But under that lawn are the remnants of the old crib wharves and the warehouse uh, footings from when it was a, uh, uh, an artery of the, of the commercial system. So right now it's part of the Strawberry Bank Museum, which uh, uh, interprets uh, three and a half centuries of, of Portsmouth life here on this, on this site. So, you know, it's very... Cool. You you walk across Puddle Dock right now, and it's this big lawn. But it was once salt water, and the flagpole is still there that was there in the American Revolution, where the drawbridge was. But today, of course, it's just an asphalt street. So 
it's uh, it's the sort of remnant when you talk about it that actually lets people imagine how much we have as a as a built civilization compromised the uh, the estuaries, compromised the watershed uh, as we have filled and diked and dammed and ditched and the rest. We really turn our back on the water and look to the land and doing stuff there instead. Molly, um, what kinds of, you, you must be very busy with end-of-the-year school programming. Um, we are, with, uh, yeah. Company. We have uh, lots of opportunities for students to get on to the, the Captain Adams, which is the name of the 30-year-old gundalo. Uh, we do programs this spring here in Portsmouth. Um, today the boat is over at the Moffat Lad House, which is another historic site. Um, we'll be doing those daily programs on board as well as a workshop that students can do that combines a visit to, to watch the new gondola being built as well as uh, visiting the Adams. So, and then after that, we shift um, into the summer schedule, which tends to be more uh, public programs. We'll be doing a series of Celebrating Our Rivers events, uh, highlighting one river each weekend uh, throughout July and August. Um, we'll also be doing a fall series um, where we'll be working with a number of mostly scientists from UNH, from the Jackson Estuarine Lab, who will be uh, speaking about some of their research, giving people a chance to learn about what some of the issues are facing this estuary, but also uh, giving people some, some action steps that people can take to uh, be better stewards. So as a dad looking for things to impress his kids with, could I um, uh, reserve a a tour of the boat, or how do I go about that? You could look on our website for our schedule. Um, you could um, certainly call and make an appointment if you wanted to, a little special attention. But you know, we have times that are scheduled when we're open to the public, um, and it's it's relatively straightforward. On cool. Our, yeah. Give me a reason to get in the water. You know, that's what it's all about. Well, or to get on the shore. You no, know, as yeah. as as successful as the program has been for the last several years, I think it's fair to say that we're all uh, feeling as though next summer will be the beginning of something really new and exciting where you'll be able to uh, either join with a school group and go out for a, a full program. Um, we're also planning to do public day sales that will be advertised where anyone can just uh, come along for a trip. We'll also be doing some thematic uh, collaborating programs where we might take a group, say, from the Nature Conservancy or some other, uh, like a land trust, where we might have a guest speaker and uh, have sort of a, a program that's done while the boat is sailing on these rivers. Uh, we're also looking to do a five-day camp for kids where they'll be circumnavigating Great Bay, spending several days um, both on the boat but also doing shore trips. Um, really trying to help people connect to this watershed in a way that up until now there just hasn't been this type of opportunity available. So, well, you know, we'd love to have people come by and see the boat under construction this summer. Um, it's really next summer that you'll want to check out the schedule and see how you can get on the, on the boat and go for a sail. That's phenomenal that it's so important to do education, you know, and to get people to understand the linkages uh, that um, I'm sure you do between... Um, between the shore and the sea. No, there there have been enough of these programs running now for the last say thirty or forty years. Clearwater is really the, the first example on the Hudson River. But you, you start looking at the map of the United States, and just about every uh, whether it's a, a river system or a bay or a gulf, there there are these boats that are uh, 
historic and regionally significant in many cases, um, trying to have this kind of program to, to help people understand the maritime heritage of a, of a region, but also taking a closer look at what's going on in the water that is part of their community. And it's, it's a model that we're looking at and have been looking at for years, but it's, there, it's been going on long enough that we feel uh, very confident that it's, it's something that uh, this area needs, and we're just looking forward to being able to offer it in a way that it hasn't been available in the Piscataqua region. That's right. You offer so many more ways to connect to the sea than just standing on a shore. Mm-hmm. And certainly uh, you offer opportunities to understand the heritage that one doesn't get unless they, you know, have something like, like a vessel to relate it to. Right. And then the vessel is a great example of the forces of the ocean that otherwise may not be appreciated. Right. No, I think there'll be a, it will be very easy to demonstrate to people the, the strength of the tidal current on these rivers. Uh, it's it's impressive, and I think it's not the sort of thing that the average visitor notices unless you're out there. But, for instance, there are a couple of nuns in cans that uh, practically are submerged when the tide is running at its peak, so it's, it's not an insignificant force to reckon with. That's right. Portsmouth Harbor is one of the scariest harbors in the world because, I guess, because you've got Great Bay and all this water cooped up on one side. and Yeah, well, it's there, there's seven rivers that are all trying to run downstream to get to the ocean, and there's a, there are a few curves uh, that make it so that all this water is trying to get around the corner and empty into the Piscataqua River on its way out with the tide or coming in with the tide. So it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenal amount of water moving through a narrow place. Well, I really appreciate you taking time to tell us about the Gundalo Project. Uh, tell us again how people can learn about... Uh, Yeah, uh, visit our website. It's uh, gundalo.org, and uh, there's sections on both the programs that we're doing currently, but also what's coming up in the future, and we encourage visitors to stop by in Portsmouth and look us up. We're uh, set up to welcome people on board the Captain Adams as well as at the the Puddle Dock Shipyard. Thank you. Jeff, you're up. So I had the good fortune of... uh, coming up to UNH to hear you give a talk and was impressed to see the, old, the wonderful painting by Winslow Homer of uh, Dory Man, you know, pulling on the oars up a steep wave and the tilt of the boat revealed this big halibut lying on the floorboards. And um, that's not what I expected to see in, in your lecture. What, what's going on there? Yeah, my goal is always to surprise, keep them on their toes. Um, it's an iconic painting, this painting that, uh, that Homer did in 1885. He initially called it the Halibut Fisher, and later it was retitled the Fog Warning. It was unveiled in New York to great acclaim. And it's, uh, it's a painting that people have often imagined was uh, timeless. It, it spoke to men against the sea. It spoke to the heroic age of, uh, of Dory Fisher's uh, hook and line fishery in the age of sail. And it's a, it's a stunning painting, as you mentioned. It's, it's composed with this ominous fog bank rolling in from the right and the schooner being obscured and the lone fisherman pulling on the oar up the crest of the wave, looking over his shoulder, hoping, obviously, to be able to get back to the safety of his schooner before obscured by the fog. But as you say, it's a painting with sort of somber and dark tones, and the flash of white in the painting that attracts your eye is that white underbelly of the dead fish, the halibut, that, uh, the largest member of the flounder family that's in the fisherman's boat. And 
what I've done, I mean, I guess the talk that you saw, and um, I've used this other otherwise to to suggest that this painting is anything but timeless. Yeah, it, it's been interpreted for for decades in terms of timelessness, men against the sea. But I point out that actually dory trawling or dory fishing separate from the schooner in a dory as that fisherman would have known. That was only about 30 years old when Winslow Homer painted this painting. The halibut fishery, halibut had been trash fish for, for centuries. They had just been redefined maybe 45 years before as a valuable commodity. By 1885 when Homer painted the, the painting, they were almost commercially extinct in the Western Atlantic. Gloucester fishermen were then sailing to Greenland and to Iceland on the fringes of Europe to make their halibut trips because they had hit the halibut so hard in the North Atlantic, in the Western Atlantic. So, so the painting, rather than being timeless, it actually captures this, this special moment. Technologically, the, the, the brief period of dory trawling, um, ecologically, the, uh, the virtual extermination of the halibut and apex predator, and, uh, and historically, that m- relatively unknown moment between the two well-known bookends that we all associate, you know, that unfathomable abundance of this marine ecosystem when Captain John Smith or, or Samuel Champlain arrived here, and now the tattered remnant with which we live today. So what I've tried to do as a historian is to get people to think about the sea in different ways than some of the classic sea stories uh, about men against the sea or the big one that got away uh, would would lead us to uh, to believe. Yes, well, it's, it's remarkable uh, the way you you pull it together. And this was uh, at a time when you were working with other researchers to document the uh, state of the fisheries back in the 19th century, or what? Yeah, I've been part of a of an interdisciplinary team uh, centered at UNH, but it's really been part of an international collaborative. It was part of the Census of Marine Life. Our group was the uh, HMAP wing which was the uh, historic marine animal populations. We had study centers in Denmark and the U.K. and, uh, and here at UNH as well as some satellite sites in Australia and South Africa and elsewhere. What we're, what we're doing, the team, um, is using any available evidence from the past, whether it's documentary evidence, photographic evidence, archaeological evidence, paleo-archaeological evidence, um, uh, faunal evidence from fish bones, um, anything from the past that would reveal former abundance or the, the nature of an ecosystem. In other words, you know, the salmon runs in the White Sea or the herring fishery in the Skagrak between Denmark and Sweden or the uh, records from the cod fishery here on the, on the Nova Scotian shelf. And these different groups uh, have been trying to use these proxies from the past to gain a better understanding of of oceans past, what the living ocean looked like at different times in the past. And part of this, of course, is uh, aimed at making people realize what we've lost. Part of it is uh, helping, we hope, uh, fisheries managers, whether in Canada or the U.S. or, or the European Union, um, better regulate the remnant that we have and try to move once again to more productive ecosystems, ecosystems that will provide more goods and services for our uh, ever-growing population, as well as be strong and resilient on their own. Mm. So, um, but that's a phenomenal amount of information you've got to call through. I mean, all the logbooks and so forth. Our group, our group ended up finding a treasure trove of fisheries records from the middle of the 19th century, and we were ultimately, by marrying 
uh, biostatistics and ecological modeling with historical analysis by getting uh, faculty and grad student experts from, from different colleges at the university who had really different sorts of skill sets and, and research questions to come together around this shared interest in what oceans past looked like. And we were able to ultimately take this uh, logbook data from the American schooner fishery in the 1850s and 60s and um, produce a couple of, of pioneering papers. One reconstructed the biomass, uh, the living um, tonnage or weight of, of cod, the cod population, like a demographic assessment of cod, uh, off the Nova Scotian shelf in, um, in 1861. And that was based on uh, biostatistics, uh, a model, fisheries uh, management model. We were taking modern fisheries management modeling techniques and ecological analysis but putting in data from the 1850s. And no group uh, had ever done this before. So we were sort of making up the, the methodology as we went along. It took a long time. Uh, biostaticians and ecologists and historians have different <laughs> work patterns and different reward structures and different, uh, different guilds, different conferences. But, but we were all committed to the idea that this was important, and we knew it was unknowable by people from any single group. So without the collaboration the results simply were not possible. So anyway, the group has published yes. a couple of papers. Jeff, we'll be right back uh, after this break. Okay. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. All together Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Jeff Bolster from the University of New Hampshire, and he's been telling us about an international research project called The History of Marine Animal Populations, 
um, and just phenomenal extent of uh, research and, and tracking logs. And out of that, or maybe elsewhere, um, you, you had a, a fabulous uh, insight for, us, for most of us about um, how we once perceived the fishing to be back in the days of the fishing dories. Yeah, Rob, the, uh, one of the tragedies, uh, one of the often unexamined tragedies of the, of the world's uh, oceanic crisis today is the changing nature of fishing gear. And it basically goes like this. A long time ago, centuries ago, fishermen were well aware that catches were declining. They knew that if the same number of guys with the same gear fished the same place for the same amount of time, they were catching less fish. And what happened is in the 1850s, that sort of crystallized here in New England and Nova Scotia, Norway, England, a bunch of places in the North Atlantic. And as catches were going down for the classic bottom fish, the, the cod and the haddock, etc., the gear shifted from men hand-lining over the rail, the way they'd done since the Middle Ages, standing on the rail of the ship and fishing with a hand-line, each man having two or at most four hooks. And they shifted to going out from the mothership in a small boat and setting a long line on which was attached hundreds of hooks. So within a decade, the average fisherman went from tending two to four hooks to tending 200 to 400 hooks. And what this did is it immediately increased the hook footprint, the saturation of baited hooks in the area, and it, of course, bumped up the catches. And so people lost sight of the fact that catches had been going down. And then during the next few decades, five or six decades, catches went down with a long-line technology. And in the early 20th century, the technology was shifted from long lines to dragging nets along the bottom with motor ships or steamships. And suddenly the catches went back up again. And then by the middle of the 20th century, the catches are going down, and people are concerned once again. And then what happened right after World War II? Sonar, electronic fish finders, electronic positioning devices, polyester nets, and lo and behold, the catches go back up again. And then by the late 1960s, there's the really hard whacking of the fish docks, and by the 1990s, 1990, the stocks crash catastrophically. So what we have here is several centuries of camouflage, the camouflaging of the impact on the living ocean that began in, in, a, in a negative way, a detrimental way, in the age of hooks and lines and sails and oars. And part of what you know, my book and part of what our project is doing is trying to reconstruct for people not just what was going on, but how past fishermen and fishing communities and naturalists were concerned at the time. And what's, what's tragic is the extent of the commentary in the 1850s or the 1870s or the 1880s, 1910, about the depleted state of the ocean, and yet it continued to get worse and worse and worse. Yeah, it was just an eye-opener for me when you said that, uh, you know, there were these Massachusetts fishermen in the Gulf of Maine, and in hauls a, a, a sailing ship from France, and out comes these long-line dories, and the hook-and-line New Englanders are going, you know, oh, my gosh, it's the new technology. It's the end of, of uh, the livelihood we know. Yeah, and it's, <clears throat> that was going on in the 1850s, and it's exactly <clears throat> analogous to what happened in the 1950s. Um, I happen to be born in 1954. 1954 was the first year the modern factory freezer trawler was ever launched, and they were designed in Scotland and England by a whaling company, um, which whaling firm knew that the global stock of whales 
was running out. And they had developed the technology to kill whales in the 30s and ramp them up on the stern of a ship, a tilted ramp in the back of the ship. And this whaling captain realized that you could, you could redesign a fishing boat instead of towing a net off the side, which is the still way it was being done in the 1950s. You could make a ramp in the back and tow a big net in the back and pull up more fish. So the modern factory freezer trawlers were designed from fishing, for fishing, because of the already depletion of, of global whale stocks. And in 1954, that first ocean liner-sized factory freezer trawler arrived on this side of the ocean from England, and the local fishermen were astonished. They were out there in maybe boats at best 300 tons, and these new ships were 2,500 tons, and they looked like ocean liners, and they swept up everything in their path. But the point is... Right. That, that sort of substitution had gone on a century before when the French showed up in square riggers and these uh, big long-line ships and New Englanders had small schooners and hand lines. So. Yeah, and now we've got these midwater trawlers that are getting bigger and bigger so that, you know, 5% of the fleet is catching, you know, half the catch or something. And uh, then they start fishing in, in, on the bottom when they shouldn't and stuff. Oh, there's lots of abuses today, and... Um, you know, it's a complicated dance. I think that we as a society want economic growth. We as a society want goods and services from the ecosystem, including uh, seafood. Um, we as a society are sometimes short-sighted about what very small sectors of the society are doing to parts of the ecosystem that have uh, ramifications for all of us. But, you know, the first three words of the Constitution are we the people, and uh, all of the living resources as well as the mineral resources, oil, etc in the 200-mile exclusive economic zone of the United States are actually there or controlled by, supposedly, for we the people. And so um, uh, I'm a, um, a former commercial seaman. I believe in a working waterfront. I believe that we need to have a fishing community, but I also think that we need to be very careful going forward and try to do things better than we've done for a long time to make sure there will be both fish and fishermen in the future. So you're talking sustainable stewardship. Yeah, and, um, you know, sustainable ocean fishing, it may well be an oxymoron. The way, certainly the way it's been conducted in the last several centuries, it's been an oxymoron. And even, even at times when uh, people have known what's going on, short-term gain and accumulation of capital has always come over long-term stewardship, which would have meant greater long-term profit. But it's that short-term gain amassing capital, and then maybe getting out of the, out of the business. Um, that's what has uh, unfortunately marked much of the, uh, of the fishery. So going forward, uh, you know, right now, for instance, there's been a discussion about bluefin tuna in the Atlantic, and the Obama administration's been hedging about whether to limit, uh, name them as an endangered species or not, blah, blah, blah. Everybody, everybody who knows anything about bluefin tuna understand that right now they are like the American bison. You know, we watched the American bison being slaughtered out railroad car windows in the 19th century, and these once unimaginable herds reduced to a tiny, tiny fraction. That's what's happening with the bluefin right now. Um, not so long ago, when you and I were kids, they were called horse mackerel. They were just junk. They were like trophy fish for anglers, but nobody cared about them. But today, with the global sushi market, they are the most single valuable organism in the world. There's no other animal that has more value in the market than a big uh, bluefin tuna. 
And so oh, I heard like three hundred thousand dollars for one fish. It's amazing. Uh, can be that's a, that's high, but um, well, that's a high one. That's an exceptional yeah, one. But, but even but so, the problem is and so, they're not they're harder to count than bison. At least bison, you know how many are on the range. <laughs> right. The problem with the bluefin is uh, people can say, well, the numbers don't justify it or something. Yeah, well, that's always been the the story with fisheries. I mean, I can point back to the eighteen seventies and. Uh, you know, haul out all sorts of congressional testimony and documentation where people then say, we need more science. It's not clear. And that's the line that's often trundled out today. It's not entirely clear. Well, you don't need to have a sophisticated kind of regressional analysis done to know that there's a hell of a lot less fish in the ocean right now than there used to be. Um, so a common sense approach says what we don't need right now is more science. We do need more science. But we don't need more science to make a decision about whether a precautionary approach is warranted. And the, the bottom line is that in terms of the ocean's living resources, um, from the Viking Age or the medieval period till today, we have rarely, rarely, if ever, used a precautionary approach. And at this point, it's caught up to us. Yes, it really has. And it's, this is the time to do it. And we're never going to have the causal science of saying, you know, this action will result in X number of fish versus that or Y number of fish because the system is too darn complex to, to try to make those predictions. And it, yeah, it's an extraordinarily complex system. And in the 1870s and 1880s, the first major federally funded initiative ever of any kind of science was uh, fishery science. And um, um, it was a combined uh, natural science, technological, and business initiative, but it put massive federal resources for the first time ever into R&D, and it was all about fisheries and marine science. Um, but at the time, there was a naivete among the best and brightest. Uh, they imagined that, you know, relatively soon they would be able to understand uh, basically how the ocean functioned. They still had a somewhat naive sense that it was pretty Newtonian, that it worked in a mechanistic way and was predictable. And today, of course, right. we understand that, uh, that that's not the case and that the, the you know, uh, natural systems fluctuate and as living populations uh, fluctuate if you fish them hard in what's already a natural downturn, um, you can destroy the stock. And this is what has happened in, in some fisheries. I mean, the California uh, sardine fishery is a classic case, but uh, the North Sea herring fishery and others as well. And Newfoundland. Yeah, well, the Newfoundland, that was even a, um, yes. Uh, you know, the Newfoundland cod fishery, as we all know now, it's been closed for 20 years. Um, the cod have not come back. Fishermen there are fishing for uh, uh, crabs and uh, shrimp instead. But um, that system had been fished for 500 years. And for about 400 years, it was fished in a relatively sustainable way. 250,000 to 300,000 metric tons a year live weight of cod being taken out of that system, 16th century, 17th century, 18th century, 19th century, into the early 20th century. And then you get this shift to mechanization, and it was uh, 1967, 68, 69, that annual catches went from about 400,000 metric tons to 800,000. And that's the tipping point. At that point, the system crashed. In other words, uh, we fishermen, uh, we humans, we societies took too much out in too short of a time and dealt a staggering blow to that system. But the, the, the point really is that for 400 years, we've been taking out several hundred thousand metric tons a year, and the system seems to be able to handle that. It's when we got extra greedy and took out twice as much 
that we whacked it, and now it's never come back. Right. Wow. So you're put. You're. I understand you're writing a book, and um, your your book uh, talks of uh, an age of uh, sail and oars. And um, tell us a little bit about that. Oh yeah, the book I'm writing is called "Changes in the Sea in the Age of Sail," and um, it's really a book about what happened in the North Atlantic to the living ocean before industrialization or before mechanization. In other words, the point I'm really trying to make is that the plight of the living ocean today is not just a result of post-World War II technologies of sonar and radar and uh, GPS and polyester nets. Um, the state of the ocean had been affected by human harvesters for a very long time. And so what I try to do is weave together the story of maritime communities, you know, uh, uh, places like Lunenburg, Nova Scotia, and Gloucester, Massachusetts, and Portsmouth, and... Um, with maritime, with with marine communities, with the uh, with the marine biological communities on which those human communities depended, and so I talk about you know eider ducks and and right whales and codfish and menhaden and mackerel as much as people, and I've tried to tell the story that goes really from the the, the late Middle Ages, the Viking Age in Europe, uh, to about World War One, goes back and forth on both sides of the Atlantic, and explains in what I hope is a is a compelling way about changes in the sea. You know, the, the, I, I guess the underlying drumbeat there is this sort of tragic sense that people knew what was happening for a very long time. And um, to me, as a historian, what's most chilling is to find evidence from the past, from 150 or 160 years ago or more, um, or even, you know, from the Middle Ages when you're talking about European anadromous systems, um, where people fully understood what was happening, and yet the political economy was such, whether it was a monarchy or a republic or a democracy, the political economy was such that uh, that they couldn't stop or they couldn't change. That's the tragedy. Bad news for the resource. We'll be back after this break. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. All together Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. 
You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. We're talking with Professor Jeff Bolster from the University of New Hampshire, and he has been explaining about how what we think is a modern problem of technologies enabling too many fish to be taken from the sea is actually one that's repeated throughout history for hundreds of years where they would overfish and then they'd have to come up with a new technology which would haul up more fish than before and they would kind of forget about there's a limited fish and we kept kind of repeating the history. Uh, and we're also talking with Molly Bolster from uh, the Gundalow Company about their education and awareness uh, programs that uh, they're running out of Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Um, Molly, um, there, there was a State of the Estuary report for the region that you're working in? Uh, yes. In 2009, uh, the Piscataqua Region Estuaries Partnership uh, does this State of the Estuaries every three years, and the, uh, the, the, the announcement in 2009 that um, despite years of land protection and education and you know, efforts to protect the environmental quality of the Piscataqua watershed, um, actually 11 out of the 12 environmental indicators show either negative or cautionary trends. And not surprisingly, the, the most pressing threats to the estuaries are all related to population growth and increases in nutrient loads and non-point source pollution. Um, and I think you know, we are seizing on this feeling of urgency now where a number of the rivers have been designated as impaired, and we're trying to say, you know, we, as Jeff was saying before, we don't really need more science to prove this. What we really need is some action on the part of all of us who live here to try to minimize or at least reduce our impact, whether it's through... Uh, education efforts such as what we're doing where we're trying to encourage people to use less fertilizer or um, you know, don't clear-cut your property right to the river's edge or make sure your uh, boat is getting pumped out in the right way and that you're not dumping raw sewage into the harbor. I mean, these are things that any one of us, if we're made aware of it, can change some of our behavior uh, to ultimately make a bet, you know, be better stewards and, and hopefully save the watershed for generations to come, and I think, you know, there is this feeling that, that drives us in this particular project where we're trying to get people out onto the rivers in a way that they haven't been. Um, for the vast majority of people who live here, this river network has been relatively inaccessible, and it's really a challenge uh, to, to make people aware of it, aware of what some of the problems are if they've never even seen it. And so we're saying if we can get people out to experience these rivers um, to gain some appreciation for them, they're much more likely to try to protect them. So it's, you know, it's a, a repeat of other places, other uh, projects, but at least we're trying to feel like if, if we can get people out there to understand it, um, they're more likely to take care of it. And you mentioned three of the uh, negative trending environmental factors being uh, nutrient loading and um, which is like use of fertilizer plus sewage outfall plus what sedimentation from uh, clear cutting or what, oh, are, what are some of the uh, 
Yeah, sedimentation, uh, clear cutting is huge. There's also the impervious surface. You know, there's more blacktop per square mile in this watershed. Uh, you know, the the, num- the amount keeps increasing by huge proportions every year. Every time a new parking lot is made or a big box store is built, um, that just reduces the ability of the water to sink into the ground and go slowly. It, it runs very quickly and creates this erosion uh, and then sedimentation. So that's that's another problem. But the, and ultimately, you know, the, the, what we're seeing in very clear evidence is that the eelgrass that used to be really abundant throughout the Great Bay um, has declined. In some areas, it's gone completely. Um, in other areas, it's, it's so far reduced that it's, uh, you know, practically disappeared. And, and then there's also the oyster uh, problem where uh, some of the oysters were died off through the virus a decade or so ago, but now there's a feeling that this combination of um, sedimentation and higher nutrient loads it's affecting the oyster beds as well. And obviously, you know, we're not trying to get back to a commercially viable oyster fishery, but we're merely trying to say, you know, let oysters help clean the, the water in a way that's productive. So it's, you know, it's a it's an endless cycle. So there are efforts to encourage more oysters for the the water cleaning abilities. Yes, uh, the Nature Conservancy and the Jackson Estuarine Lab at UNH um, have been doing a, a concentrated effort over the last years, uh, several years, trying to build artificial habitat for oysters, trying to rebuild some of the reefs. Um, there is also a pretty active effort to uh, collect oyster shells from restaurants, um, and then they dry them for, I think, a year, let the sun uh, you know, let them get completely clean, and then they put them back into the rivers in the places where uh, historically there were these oyster beds because oysters need uh, oyster shells to lay the spat to produce the, the next round of oysters. And I think through that there has been a raised awareness of uh, the role that oysters have played in this region, um, and hopefully someday, you know, they're hoping there will be enough back in there that people might be able to eat them again, but that's that's not the short-term goal. The, the wow. Short- uh, we're out of time. Uh, Jeff, I want to thank Jeff Bolster and Molly Bolster. I want to thank you both for taking time with us on uh, Warriors Environmental Dialogue. Thanks, Rob. Well, thank you, Rob. We enjoyed it. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyers Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Living Channel. We'll talk again then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.